Welcome to episode four in the second season of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the producer of the podcast, Kevin Steele, and with me is our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. Today, we'll look at some of the things that have been said and written in defense of the COVID-19 lockdown measures, and we'll get John to respond. In the January 22nd edition of the Edmonton Journal, an article appeared entitled, Quashing Misconceptions. Alberta physicians answer the 20 most frequently asked questions about COVID-19. And it's subtitled, A panel of physicians from the Strategic COVID-19 Pandemic Committee has put together evidence-based answers to 20 frequently asked questions. Dr. Noel Gibney is co-chair of that panel slash committee, and his picture accompanies the article, twice as a matter of fact, once with a mask and once without. John, in this piece, do you think Dr. Gibney is responding to some of the criticisms you've been making? Well, I don't know, but I'm really glad to see that there's some debate taking place. The tactic used by the government and by the chief medical officers in the past 10 months is to simply dismiss anybody that questions the wisdom of lockdowns. Uh, Their tactic and strategy has been to uh, dismiss doctors who disagree with lockdowns as uh, quacks and kooks and not qualified rather than engaging in debate. And we also have a track record of at least nine months of government simply not answering questions uh, as just one example. And I could give you dozens uh, when the Alberta government came out with fear mongering modeling in April of 2020, claiming that even with lockdown measures in place, as many as 32,000 Albertans uh, could die of COVID. And I wrote and said, what's your basis for this claim that 32,000 people could die even with lockdown measures in place? Mm-hmm. Bear, bear in mind, of course, that the total number of deaths in Alberta every year is is about 27,000. So they're saying that COVID deaths could uh, exceed the total number of deaths from all causes. I mean, it, it's it's so absurd. I said, what's your basis? Is it just the uh, fear-mongering and wildly inaccurate models that were put out by Dr. Deal Ferguson of Imperial College? Or do you have other papers, other documents What are the scientific paper studies, reports, computer models, documents that you base this on? Pretty simple question that any member of the public deserves an answer to, right? If you're going to scare people by saying that COVID is going to kill 32,000 people in Alberta, and where are we at today, 1,500, if you're going to frighten people that way, uh, shouldn't you just say what, what your basis was, what documents you're relying on? I mean... So to not answer that question, and then I won't give the other dozens and dozens of examples of basic, simple questions that every citizen has a right to know the answer to. And I've been told, you know, John, these people have better things to do with their time than answer your letters. And I say, you know what, I agree, they have better things to do with their time than answer my letters. However, there's no reason for not posting this stuff on a government website, Right, so it's not it's not about whether or not I got a response to my letter. That's not really the point. The point is that uh, the government websites do not delve into uh, lockdown harms. They don't talk about uh, deaths from cancelled surgeries. Every province, with the possible exception of Saskatchewan, 
is not making an effort to track how many people died because their medically necessary surgeries were cancelled because of lockdowns. So they're not researching, they're not investigating, they're not tracking the data, and they're not posting anything on the government website. So it's really refreshing when you have a medical doctor uh, like Dr. Noel Gibney of Edmonton that comes out with um, a whole bunch. It's, it's, a, it's a lengthy article. Uh, the website says it's, it's an 18-minute read. So um, it takes a while to get through. But I want to go through uh, some of these points that... Uh, can I just, before you start, I just want to point out, it's not a matter of answering John Carpe. They have an obligation. If they're going to take away charter rights, they have an obligation to justify it, demonstrably justify it. I mean, that's the thing you, they can't forget, and they have. They have completely forgotten it. Yeah. I'm not sure if, if Dr. Dina Hinshaw, the Alberta uh, chief medical officer, even understands that she herself is obligated to comply with the charter. Uh, because some months back, uh, something was asked about the charter and restrictions on charter violations and whether they were justified. And she completely dismissed it and said, well, that's a legal question. Yes. It's like, you know, Steal does, your does, job. <laughs> does, she, does she even understand that as a government official, I mean, this applies to every government official, uh, every government official, whether you're elected, like the, the premier, the, you know, the MLAs, MPPs. Uh, or whether you're uh, appointed like a chief medical officer, every government official has an obligation under the charter to to demonstrate, to justify demonstrably that the benefits outweigh the harms. And when somebody's not even doing their homework on the harms, and we know that governments are not because our researchers have spent literally hundreds of hours trying to find these the documents that would show that governments are actually trying to find out the, the nature and the full extent and the gravity and the severity of every conceivable lockdown harm. Mm. Because governments do not do anything without uh, putting it in writing, either you know email right. or hard copy. These days it would be emails. I mean, governments do not operate that way. So if the government was uh, actually trying to find out the extent of the lockdown harms, there would be documents that show that. Right. And they're I not. Simply, yeah. I, I simply want to point that out because we cannot lose sight of that fact. I mean, that is the real reason we're doing these podcasts about this is because they haven't justified it. Anyways, now you can go ahead now that I've put my little caveat in there. All right. So um, Dr. Noel Gibney says, in a bid to set the record straight. Well, uh, it's, it's a very confident start. A panel of physicians who, who are not named – uh, from a so-called strategic COVID-19 pandemic committee. And uh, the only doctor that I'm aware of is, is Noel Gibson. So Gibney. Uh, no, I'm, I'm sure he had input from other doctors. That's fine. And if yeah. they want to be anonymous, that's fine as well. I can tell you the physicians that I'm in touch with, most of them are quite terrified of their colleges because the College of Physicians and Surgeons or the colleges, rather, in most provinces are uh, taking a very unscientific approach of squelching debate and telling the doctors that they need to line up behind the chief medical officer and support whatever he or she is saying. Mm -hmm. And this is a read between the lines. Suspicious. I've, yeah. I, it's, 
slightly off topic from uh, from Noel Gibney, but I want to address it. Uh, I, I have emails that have been sent to me by Alberta doctors, and I understand the same things happening in other provinces. The emails do not come right out and say that, you know, uh, look, you must uh, publicly support and privately support uh, everything that the chief medical officer is doing. It's not worded that way, but it's a kind of a sinister read between the lines uh, you know, if somebody says to you in a certain tone of voice, if you do that, you'll regret it, you know, and nice practice you got there could be Shame if anything would happen to it. Yeah. Yeah, wouldn't it be unfortunate if you're, you know, wouldn't it be unfortunate if, if suddenly your house burned down next week, right? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not as bad as that. I hope <laughs> it's not as bad as that, but the, the whole tone of it basically yeah. says to doctors that even in their individual conversations with patients, with neighbors, with family members, mm -hmm. they are not to quite, they are not to publicly question the narrative. And uh, so I'm, I'm in touch with a lot of medical doctors, uh, including infectious disease specialists. And uh, most, but not all are quite afraid of their colleges. So right. I think, you know what, if if Dr. Noel Gibney wants to keep private the names of the doctors that uh, provided input, that's totally fine. Uh, I'm doing likewise with my uh, columns and podcasts. He's retired, so he's out of it anyway. He's not under the college anymore, as far as I understand it. So I'm pretty sure that's why he's out front. But that's right. a guess on my part. So the first question, uh, first question that Dr. Gibney tackles is how should we interpret daily data updates to understand the current threat of COVID-19? Well, this is a little bit, you know, presumptive uh, because everything he wrote is, uh, is, is predicated on the assumption uh, for which he doesn't provide any evidence that, that COVID-19 is an unusually deadly killer that we should be very afraid of. Mm -hmm. I'll leave that aside for a moment. So he talks about cases, but the problem is that the uh, positive the positive PCR tests are not cases because they are not clinical infections and therefore they pose no no risk of spreading that's the other big thing that uh, Dr. Gibney's entire writings are all based on this assumption that asymptomatic people are spreaders of the virus when this is simply not the case the the best and latest scientific research is that the spread of COVID by asymptomatic people is very minimal. It's not non-existent. In particular, pre-symptomatic people can be spreaders. So if you've, you've got a COVID infection, and again, these so-called cases, they don't measure infections. They measure whether you've got some remnants of a dead virus, could be COVID, could be something else in your system. They do not measure COVID infections. So when they talk about, you know, uh, so many cases of positive test results, these are not sick or infected people, or at least 97% of these so-called cases do not involve sick people. So the only way that asymptomatic people are spreading it is if they are pre-symptomatic, so they are actually infected, but there is a period of one, two, three, four, five days where they don't have, let's say the, you know, the, the fever, the sore throat, whatever the symptoms are. So there's some spread, but the spread is so minimal that it, uh, if that card gets pulled out, uh, the whole house of cards crumbles. Mm -hmm. Down so, it goes. 
so he goes into uh, goes into these case numbers. He suggests at one point that ten uh, percent of seniors are dying if they require hospitalization. That doesn't jive with uh, scientific research that shows that even the elderly people over seventy, kind of the, the the group that's most threatened, their infection survival rate is ninety five percent, and. What's interesting about that compared to the annual flu is that, you know, we've gone from uh, an annual flu where your your chance uh, as an elderly vulnerable person, your chance of surviving was 98%, 99%. This has gone down to 95%. So COVID is definitely more deadly for the elderly, uh, elderly people with one, two, usually three or more comorbidities like cancer, emphysema, heart disease, kidney disease, uh, liver disease, so on and so forth. So COVID is more dangerous than the annual flu for a very small segment of the population. But, you know, there's a difference. If you tell uh, if you tell an elderly person, well, last year you had a 1% chance of, uh, of dying of the annual flu, and this year you have a 5% chance of dying of COVID. Well, that doesn't sound too bad because then it's like, well, okay, so I'm going from 99% chance of survival down to a 95% chance of survival. This exact same data, if you say your chance of dying of COVID is five times as high as dying of the annual flu. Mm-hmm. Well, now that sounds really scary. And both are accurate, right? But it's it's how do you how do you present the data? So if you tell seniors that their chance of dying of COVID is five times as high as your chance of dying of the annual flu, then that sounds pretty scary. Uh, but looking at the same facts through a different lens, you could say, well, uh, last year, 99% chance of surviving. This year, 95% chance of surviving. Most people would respond to that by saying, okay, you know, I'll be extra cautious. But that's not really something to put the fear of God into you to tell you that your survival chance has gone down from 99% to 95%. Fair enough. Okay, so that he had 20 points here, right? That's uh, that's the Gibney has 20 points in this article. You kind of took off after number one there. Is that what you were nailing, right? Yeah, okay. I'll finish off on number one. So sure. he talks about cases and uh, talks about how widespread infections are, uh, which is which is simply not true. A positive test result uh, emphatically does not mean that a clinical infection is present or that a person is infectious to others. Personal anecdote, uh, I know somebody who was out of the country over the Christmas holidays, came back on January 5th. She got a first COVID test, tested negative, and then was required a week later under this pilot project. So you can, theoretically, you can avoid the 14-day federal quarantine by getting yourself tested at the airport uh, upon arrival. And then you only have to be quarantined for one or two days waiting for your test results. If the test result is negative, you can be out and about, go about your business. And then you have to do a follow-up test a week later. And so, so this person uh, came back to Canada from out of the country on January 5th. Fortunately for her, this is two days prior to this sudden announcement of Canadians now stranded abroad because they couldn't get a COVID test. Uh, that kicked in on February, on January the 7th. Anyway, uh, this woman, first she tested negative upon arrival. Then a week later, uh, or six days later, on Monday the 11th, she got a second COVID test. This time it came back positive. Okay, 
So the health authorities were on her case and, you know, and where have you been and this and that and contract tracing and you've got a quarantine, blah, 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 blah. All of this, uh, all these violations of her freedoms are imposed on her. She had no symptoms at all. Now, you could you could have argued that, well, maybe she was pre-infectious on uh, or pre-symptomatic on January the 11th. So, you know, she had it in her body, but uh, the symptoms weren't showing yet. We're now on... January the 27th. So we are, we're more than two weeks after the fact. This lady has not been sick at all with Mm -hmm. COVID symptoms in the past two weeks. So there's a case in point. You have somebody who tested positive for COVID and absolutely definitively did not have COVID because other than I I think she had a mild headache one night and, uh, you know, a few days later she had, she sneezed once or twice, but you know, uh, allergies, but has not been sick at all right. in the past two weeks and tested positive. So that's a, that's firsthand. Uh, it's firsthand. Point number two that Dr. Gibney raises. So what is contact tracing and why is it important? Well, he says the goal is to reduce transmissions uh, by identifying exposed people who may be infected, notifying them, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Dr. Gibney is wrong because for one, asymptomatic people are not significant spreaders of the virus. The virus is spread by people who have symptoms. And even in households, symptomatic people spread COVID to other household members in only 18% of cases or of situations. And asymptomatic spread is down to less than 1%. So even symptomatic people uh, in 80% of the time do not spread COVID to the people that they live with, but in 18% of the cases, uh, they they do. So, you know, this is significant. Sources, sources. What are your sources? (laughs) Dr. Gibney mentions a few here and there, but not that many, Uh, particularly when he comes out with his uh, bold claim about how lockdowns have been effective. I'll get to that later. Uh, There's no sources cited for that. But what what Dr. Gibney fails to realize is that the, the genie is out of the bottle. COVID is out and about. Never before in human history has any country, civilization, or society succeeded in stopping the spread of a virus by locking down the entire healthy population. At best, you can temporarily slow down the virus, and it's hard to measure by how much you have or have not slowed down the virus. There's some data on this from the Spanish flu in the United States, mm-hmm. and there were cities that had partial lockdowns uh, you know, for a week or two, and cities that, that did absolutely nothing. One city in particular, they had this big, huge parade where all the streets were packed together with people really tightly. And what that data shows is that, yes, the lockdowns did slow the spread of the Spanish flu on a temporary basis. But then once the lockdowns are lifted, the virus just spreads again. And sooner or later, the virus is out and about. And those that get it and are vulnerable, they die and other people don't get it or they get it and they've got the immunity, the, the wherewithal to, to survive it. So, I mean, the best you can do is protect the people that are the most vulnerable, which in the case of the Spanish flu was impossible because it killed people in their 20s and 30s and 40s, as well as their 50s and 60s. It just really aggressively went after the entire population. Mm-hmm. COVID, in contrast, we know, and we've known this since May, this is not new, all of the data from all of the jurisdictions show that the COVID targets that people who are over 80, over 70, 
with three or more serious comorbidities. And that's the people that, those are the people who should be vulnerable. So instead of a federal deficit of $400 billion uh, spent on, you know, handing out free money, I use the word free sarcastically because there is no such thing as free money, but a fraction of the $400 billion could have been used to put in super tight, super effective safeguards on every nursing home in Canada. I'm sure the tab would have been less than $400 billion, right? That's 400000 million. Could have spent a fraction on that, on uh, protecting the seniors and vulnerable in uh, nursing homes who constitute roughly 80% of the deaths. Instead of protecting the seniors, the politicians imposed lockdowns on the whole country, uh, inflicting massive mental massive harm to mental and physical and emotional, psychological, spiritual, and financial health and well-being of people. Yes, but then you wouldn't have proven to everybody that the charter is completely useless. Well, it'll be up to the judges to uh, make sure that the charter is useful when our cases in um, BC, Alberta, Manitoba, and soon Saskatchewan as well come, uh, come before the judge. So the contact tracing is useless because, first of all, COVID is not the unusually deadly killer that we need to be worried about. So it's useless from that standpoint in the first place. When we know that what we need to do is protect people in nursing homes, the rest of us can uh, can go about our lives. Now, the pro-lockdown people will say, oh, but there's younger people and there's healthy people that are uh, also dying of COVID and my response is, yes, that's true, but those numbers are a fraction of car accident deaths. So in Alberta, for example, uh, we have 27,000 people dying every year. Uh, every year we have over 200 people die in car accidents. That excludes, of course, the, a much, much larger number of people that get injured, whether severely to the point of paralysis or whether significantly like you know, permanent lower back pain for the rest of their lives or whether it's just moderate, like you had a few bruises, but you know, you're over it a few days later. So excluding all the injuries uh, of car accidents, which are significant, but we have 200 car accident deaths out of 27,000 deaths in the province. So the COVID deaths amongst uh, asymptomatic people are at less than 3% of the 1,500. So quick math, I think that's about 45 people uh, that did not have one, two, three, or more serious health conditions, uh, immune compromised, cancer, heart disease, emphysema, et cetera, et cetera. So you have 45 people in Alberta die of COVID that were not in that vulnerable category of uh, already having serious comorbidities. And we have 200 car accident deaths. So why would we, resp we, we don't respond to the car accident deaths by banning cars, and maybe forcing everybody onto public transit. We don't. We don't do that to save the two hundred lives yet. So Sorry. yet, I'm sure some people would love that. Yes. Sorry. Um, don't give them any ideas. But you're the one doing it, not me. <laughs> so we would not destroy or even harm our economy, our society by banning cars, you know, making it impossible to, you know, turning a 10 minute drive to drive your kids to a soccer practice or uh, piano lessons or martial arts classes or whatever. You try that with public transit and, you know, depending on where you live and where the place is that you need to go, that could be a one hour trip easily, right? 
but it's 10 minutes by car. But, you know, we say, you know what, it's, it's worthwhile to have our cars because it affords us a higher standard of living that we can uh, interact socially, we can drive places, we can do things. We've got a great deal more freedom and enjoyment of life. So we're not going to ban cars in Alberta because 200 people, more than 200 people died of uh, car accidents in Alberta each year. So if we have 45 people dying of COVID uh, that are not in this category of the over 70 with three or more serious health conditions, why would we destroy our economy, destroy our our social life, destroy our mental and spiritual well-being, destroy our physical health, destroy our mental health, you know, on account of that number being a quarter of the car accident deaths. So that's why contact tracing is pointless. Secondly, the virus is out and about. The contact tracing, if it, if it really was to work, we would need an omniscient government, which is sadly the direction where we're heading in because now we have technology with your cell phone. Right. That uh, The technology is there for the government to track every movement of every citizen 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that the government, the technology is there to enable the government to pull up somebody's file and they can actually trace every single spot where that person has been in the past week, the past month, the past year, and for how long they were at each spot. Now, mm-hmm. maybe that can be circumvented in part by, uh, you know, if people just leave their cell phones at home. But of course, we're we're addicted to our cell phone. And so... <laughs> yeah. No, I get what you're saying. Uh, And the contract, we know it's a failure because the the media have reported, and remember, these are biased pro-lockdown media, Mm -hmm. okay? So if they say anything that challenges the narrative, uh, take note, you know, maybe they're speaking the truth. If if they're willing to go that far and depart from promoting a pro-lockdown narrative, but the media have reported on government ministers saying that they're largely clueless as to where the infections are coming from. Yes, so lot- that's, that's what you would figure that they would have figured out by now. I mean, that's what he says here in his number five point. The exposure information to whom and where they originally exposed from all cases is combined to look for patterns that can show a high-risk location, e.g. bar, church, grocery store, or event. So we should have some great data coming up here uh, right away, but I don't really – I haven't <laughs> seen it, but then again, you know, at this point, I'm just – Stop listening to the mainstream media. Oh, they're not. They're not that. worth. You could. You know. Anybody. Regardless. If, if for somebody listening to this podcast for the first time, and maybe you're maybe you're undecided on lockdowns, maybe you're pro lockdown. I would suggest you can learn uh, a lot more. Spending an hour on the internet, doing your own research. I'm not saying everything on the internet is true. In fact, Winston Churchill told us, "Don't believe everything on the internet." The internet says so. Ha, 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 ha. Okay. Uh, <laughs> complicated joke. That's too complicated. That's a complicated me. joke. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I'm, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of trash and misinformation and garbage on, on the internet. But in comparison to the mainstream media, your average citizen, if, if you spend an hour or two or three looking at various uh, pro-lockdown, anti-lockdown websites and just doing your own reading and just delving beneath the surface, that time is much better spent than uh, one, two, three, four hours listening to mainstream media, which typically 
does not cite any sources and is just it's just propaganda to keep people in a state of fear and propaganda to support the lockdowns. That would work. So, that would work if you don't use Google. <laughs> because now well, yeah, bias. They are as well. definitely uh, jiggering the results of uh, searches. That's for sure. So I'll move. So so on the contact tracing. Uh, it's a waste of time because COVID does not warrant it. And we already know who the vulnerable people are. Politicians have failed to protect them. So it's not warranted in the first place. Second, Secondly, contract tracing could only work if you had an omniscient government that could really look at everybody's movement and the length of time that they uh, spend. And, and how, how, you know, were they 12 inches apart, two feet apart, six feet apart? Uh, that, that's another thing. So the third point that Dr. Noel Gibney tries to address uh, is question, have the restrictions in in Alberta made a difference? And he says, yes. And he says that uh, in measures taken in the spring of 2020, reduce the number of cases by the middle of June with low rates until October. And here he is uh, forgetting all about the seasonal nature of viruses and uh, Mm-hmm. And, and flus. Yeah. And, you know, typically in the June to October window, uh, yeah, guess what? There's fewer people dying of them. But then come winter, these uh, viruses are, are more active and more lethal and more widespread. And so to attribute this to lockdowns is shallow and ignores science. But furthermore, it's entirely speculative. Even if, even if the viruses were the same 12 months a year in terms of the number of people that they impacted and killed, you're still speculating if you say there's a cause and effect between lockdown restrictions and fewer cases, even if you had the same, typically you had the same virus and infection and and lethality uh, consistently every month. Because neither Dr. Gibney nor, nor chief medical officers nor the politicians know how fast the virus was spreading on a particular day or where it was spreading or amongst whom. And you've got the case of Quebec, which had very severe lockdowns. Quebec has, uh, according to Dr. Gibney, has uh, 108 deaths per 100,000 population. That's with a severe lockdown. And Alberta, with uh, less restrictions, had 34 deaths. So that data right there that Dr. Gibney presents would suggest that uh, less lockdown restrictions lead to fewer deaths based on the data that Dr. Gibney presents. Oh, yes. I see what you're saying. Yes, of course. Right. Quebec's got the severe lockdown and lots of deaths. Alberta has uh, also has a severe lockdown, uh, contrary to what, what the premier tried to suggest a few months ago. Jason Kenney said, we've never had lockdown in Alberta. We just had targeted measures uh, well, the lockdown like, well, yeah, that we didn't have is working as a lockdown <laughs> that we didn't have. Well, yeah, now we've got Noel Gibney saying that the lockdown did work. Yeah. No, I, I think all the parents who were involuntarily and suddenly thrust into homeschooling uh, would disagree with Jason Kenney that we didn't have a lockdown. Uh, there's a wonderful recreation center with a wave pool that happens to be close to where I live in Calgary. And I used to go there with the kids, you know, once a month, once every two months, once every three months. Great for your physical health, great for your mental health, lots of fun, lots of good times together. The place hasn't been opened, hasn't been reopened since it shut down in, in mid-March of 2020. 
So we're at more than 10 months now. Uh, and the same holds true for all kinds of other facilities where people used to go and enjoy themselves, you know, racquetball, squash, bowling, the gym, team sports. I mean, anyway, yeah. uh, ho- hopefully Jason Kenny's not going to keep on trying to say we did not have a lockdown in Alberta. <laughs> that would be progress. Oh, yeah. Great. Okay, anyways, moving right along here. Moving right along. So so point number three. So Dr. Noel Gibney presents no evidence that lockdowns have worked. And I would further suggest that such evidence would be hard to come by. Uh, but he certainly doesn't uh, he doesn't uh, present any, any evidence for that. He just makes an assertion. So just following the footsteps of our politicians and chief medical officers, you know, if you assert it often enough and loudly enough, a lot of people will believe you. And a lot of Canadians have. Right. But what you're saying is what he is asserting here actually proves the opposite. So. It does. Okay. It does. Uh, actually, and I can't resist. In Britain, the the number of COVID infections and deaths had already peaked and was starting to come down before lockdowns were imposed. So there is definitely a curve in in country. In every country, there's a, there's a curve mm-hmm. where the virus enters the country, it spreads, and then it spreads more and more rapidly. And then you have the the death statistics are the same. You have one or two individuals dying. And then a week later, it's 10 and then it's 50 and then it's 200. And, you know, then depending on the the number of people in the the province or state or country, you know, it it peaks at, you know, a thousand deaths per week, whatever. Or if it's a a huge country or a state with a lot of people, it peaks at, you know, 5,000 deaths per week. And then it declines again. So you have that wave. But in Britain, the lockdowns were imposed after the COVID deaths had already peaked, just as an example of how mm-hmm. destructive and, and uh, unscientific these measures are. So Dr. Gibney, point number four, is the virus really threatening our healthcare capacity? Uh, we're supposed to have 3,000 extra beds and more than 1,000 extra ICU beds. Now, I've had this critiqued by several doctors, and I'm going to skip all the detailed back and forth, but I'm going to tackle a bigger issue on this ICU capacity and healthcare capacity. Canada's healthcare system, contrary to what you've heard, is not the best in the world. Our spending per person is amongst the highest in the world, but when it comes to outcomes like number of doctors per capita, like number of doctors in relation to the Canadian population, Number of doctors per capita, number of nurses per capita, number of available hospital beds per capita, number of ICU spaces per capita, uh, number of uh, CT scanning machines per capita, number of MRI machines per capita. In all of these factors, Canada ranks you know 25th or 14th or 21st or 7th or 11th while our spending is way up there. So the politicians have had decades to try to fix the system and they haven't. We are getting very poor value for our money, considering the the huge amounts that we spend and the poor outcomes. Uh, This data is from the World Health Organization and from the Organization of Economic uh, Cooperation and Development. Uh, Also, the McDonald-Laurie Institute, the Fraser Institute, the Frontier Center for Public Policy, these Canadian think tanks, they all have that same data, that we're a big spender with mediocre and often poor outcomes. And now we have Dr. Noel Gibney saying that we should just uh, cheerfully, gratefully give up our charter rights and freedoms. And uh, because somehow it's our fault 
as Canadian people that the hospitals are overcrowded when politicians have failed to fix that system in the past years yeah. and decades. Well, actually, Ontario is trying to address that now. I think the uh, provincial government there has announced that they're actually going to expand their capacity. And there was an interesting note in the story that I had read that this was the first expansion of hospital bed and ICU capacity in 30 years. Yeah. That, but Jason, in Alberta, Jason Kenney's government announced in April that they had the capacity to increase ICU spaces to over a thousand. And so the same people that were warning us, you know, to keep us in a state of fear, the same people warning us about the second wave and how deadly the second wave would be uh, are, are the same people that didn't bother in the past year to increase our hospital uh, hospital bed capacity and ICU capacity. So they should be ashamed of themselves. Oh, they and, did. They uh, did make a request to the federal government to see if there were any field hospitals available. <laughs> well, they didn't. Do I it. mean, it's nothing. You know, so it's not nothing. I mean, when, when this is the same people fear mongering about a second wave that failed to increase the hospital and ICU capacity. I mean, it, it is so hypocritical. So that deals with point number four. Uh, point number five. Um, Dr. Noel Gibney, uh, the question he lists is how many patients are in hospital because of COVID-19 versus with COVID-19? And uh, this is interesting. Based on emergency room diagnoses and admission data in Alberta, the majority of patients are, are admitted with severe viral pneumonia requiring oxygen treatment or admission to ICU for mechanical ventilation. Well, that doesn't sound right considering that, you know, these much-hyped ventilators uh, which were the justification, one of the key justifications for lockdowns was, in March and April, was we don't have enough ventilator machines, uh, so we have to control the spread so that the hospitals are not overwhelmed by a big wave. And a lot of people, myself included, either bought into it or didn't oppose the lockdowns because they thought, okay, well, yeah, let, let's have a short-term lockdown so we have enough ventilator machines. Once they started using these machines, uh, they they found out that in the vast majority of the cases... They're, uh, they killed the patient. They're not a good medicine. So I'm not sure what he, uh, I don't know what he's saying on that point, but he's, he's referring to uh, mechanical ventilation. Um, a very small number of patients are admitted for other care and are discovered to have COVID-19 at or after admission. Now here, this is interesting because the Statistics Canada tells us that in the first eight months of 2020, we had a drop in deaths from cancer, heart disease, stroke, to the tune of, of over 10,000 fewer deaths in 2020 than in 2019. And at the same time, we had 9,000 COVID deaths in the first eight months of, uh, of 2020. So what's happening is that the cause of death is just being categorized differently because you would expect an unusually deadly killer to ravage and devastate your population, would you not? Okay. If Canada got afflicted by a horrible virus that is an unusually deadly killer that's just killing so many people that, and that we should therefore be very afraid of, would you expect the death stats to reflect that? Well, the death stats for 2020 are in line with the death stats in 2019, 2018, 2017. So... COVID-19 had no impact on deaths in Canada. 
And uh, there's uh, American data as well to show COVID COVID nineteen had uh, no, no no meaningful impact on death numbers in the United States. Ah, they're changing that though. They're now trying to claim. Um, yeah, now they're trying to claim that actually it did. And the reason they don't know exactly what it is yet is because it takes a while for the death data to come in. So hmm. even though they're certain that it did, they don't have the data yet, but they are certain. So that's going to change. So you can assume the Canadian data is going to change as well. Well, we're taking, we're taking screenshots every day. Good. Uh, and Statistics Canada does change its data, mm. and this is not in a fraudulent or sinister sense, right. but they receive their data from the various provinces and then they enter it. So if you look at how many people in Canada died in August of 2020, if you look at that today, January the 27th, and you look at it again on February the 27th, those numbers might be different because there's always new data that is trickling in. Uh, that said, we're not seeing any significant uh, increases in the number of people dying in Canada. And that in and of itself, that tells you right there, we don't have an increase in the number of people dying. And we know that the, the target of COVID is the 70-year-old, 80-year-old, 90-year-old people that have three or more comorbidities. It's the people in nursing homes. And so the impact on the population life expectancy is negligible. And that's not irrelevant. I mean, the annual flu uh, kills children under five. COVID does not, mm -hmm. right? So if you want to do an analysis of years of life lost, which the justice said, it's on our to-do list. We're going to be coming out with that in due course. On a years of life lost or years of lost life, I forget which of the two, the, uh, the COVID is not more harmful than the annual flu when you look at it through the appropriate lens of years of life lost. Okay. Uh, I just want to interject here that we are now going on to point six. And at this rate, we're going to have a four hour program. So maybe skinny it up a little bit, John. <laughs> okay. Point number six, why is, here are two leading questions. Why is this virus so hard to control? And why do we need public health restrictions? Why is this virus so hard to control? Well, because we can't control it. Because the genie is out of the bottle, it's out and about. That's why. Okay. And then he says, why do we need public health restrictions? That presupposes that public health restrictions are needed, which presupposes that COVID is something that we should be very afraid of. And it presupposes asymptomatic spread, which is one of the foundations of the lockdowns is this idea that people who are not sick are spreading the virus. And again, the, the science doesn't support that. Well, I, point number seven, since oh. you're asking for a quick move on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Did you want to say something on point number six? <laughs> no, no, you go ahead. <laughs> okay. Uh, point number seven, how do you know when a lockdown strategy is needed? Well, one doctor said it's easy. You put your finger in the air and see which way the wind blows, or you consult your horoscope. But I think I think this doctor is being sarcastic. Uh, how do you know when a lockdown strategy is needed? Well, never. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think at some point in here, I'm, I keep looking for it because I did read this before. Uh, he talks about Sweden and quotes a BBC article where the king of Sweden regrets their initial strategy now that they've had so many deaths due to COVID compared to Norway. So. You know what? I'll, I'll start respecting those kinds of comments. Uh, once the pro lockdown people actually 
become intellectually honest about all of the lockdown harms. And so if they lamented the higher number of Swedish deaths compared to Norwegian deaths, if they combined that with a proper analysis of lockdown harms experienced by Swedes versus lockdown harms experienced by Norwegians, and if they actually went through and said, you know, what is the increase in uh, childhood obesity? What is the, how many surgeries were canceled, if any, and how many people died because surgeries were canceled because of lockdowns? What about mental health? What about alcoholism? What about family violence? What about child abuse, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If they did a proper analysis, okay, but but my response to that is, okay, so the Swedish deaths per capita, um, it was explained in part by an Irish researcher who pointed out that 2019 was an unusually low number of annual flu deaths. We have to remember every year, many seniors die because of the annual flu. And that's sad. And that's life. Uh, now, COVID for seniors is more deadly than uh, than other annual viruses. But the Swedish deaths in 2019 from Swedish deaths uh, among seniors of the annual flu was unusually low in 2019. Okay, so these people went on to live for another 12 months. 2020 came around and now it jumps up uh, because there are a lot of people who otherwise would ordinarily, if the pattern was followed each year, they would have died in 2019. But even apart from that, even if this Irish researcher, I don't have his, his name handy, even if he was wrong on that point, my response to the Sweden-Norway thing is to say, okay, so what were the lockdown harms in Norway? What were the lockdown harms in Sweden, which had almost no lockdowns? Yeah, minimum and voluntary and gonna, as well. A lot of them voluntary. So, Well, that's not a lockdown, though. If citizens themselves decide to work from home, like if you're vulnerable, whether you're 70 years old or 50 or 30 years old, if you're vulnerable because you're immune compromised and you choose to work from home, that's not a lockdown. That's individuals exercising personal responsibility. Okay. So in that, I can see so the that actual point. lockdowns. So lockdown by definition is government coercion. Okay. So if we're to look at coercive government measures in Sweden, they were minimal. I think some of the high schools and universities may have been temporarily closed. The elementary schools were not, which is in accord with science because children don't get COVID. They don't die of COVID. They don't spread COVID. And when children do have COVID, it's because they got it from their parents. So children are not COVID spreaders, and there's no need to close down elementary schools or high schools for that matter. Mm-hmm. But if you ask that question to the lockdown supporters, okay, so what were the lockdown harms in Norway? What were the lockdown harms in Sweden? And how do they compare? You're going to hear a crickets chirping because these people never want to talk about lockdown harms. They operate on the assumption that no matter how bad they were, it doesn't matter. It's all worth it because... You know, stopping uh, stopping COVID is kind of like a, an ideology or a religion. It's this blind fanaticism that we have to pay the price, no matter how high. We have to pay the price to stop COVID. And you know, I don't agree with that because I think dying of cancer because uh, you know the chief medical officers canceled uh, the MRIs and the CT scans, and you don't discover your cancer until it's too late. Uh, I don't think dying of cancer is less bad than dying of COVID. Mm-hmm. But Im- implicitly, that's what lockdown supporters would, would seem to believe. They would deny that, but they, they would seem to believe that because 
there's this fanatical obsession with uh, stopping COVID at all costs, mm. no matter what the price, no matter how many people die, we got to stop COVID. Well, I want to just skip you ahead to number 14 here because they do deal with that in this uh, 14. Uh, are COVID-19 control measures causing more harm than good? I mean, there they are <laughs> directly, directly attacking that. Okay. So we'll, we'll go through, um, go through the other ones quickly. How do you know when a lockdown strategy is needed? So that's a very biased question and he doesn't make a case for why they're needed. He just assumes mm. that, that that is the case. Uh, then Dr. Gibney asks, is what we have right now a complete lockdown? What is a circuit breaker? Okay. So he distinguishes between complete and partial lockdowns. Uh, fair enough. Partial lockdowns, uh, you know, doesn't place everybody under house arrest, but it still might put restrictions on, you know, football games or team sports or uh, people attending a house of worship, whatever. That's kind of more complete circuit lockdown. breaker is a time limited, yeah. partial or complete lockdown. Fair enough. Does taking vitamin D, question number nine, does taking vitamin D daily protect against COVID-19? And he says the studies are ongoing, but so far no good quality scientific evidence suggests that vitamin D either prevents or is useful in treating COVID-19 infections. Uh, one of the doctors I spoke with said there's that is dead wrong. Uh, there are many studies out there, scientific peer-reviewed studies showing that vitamin D can and does play a positive role in reducing your chance of getting infected and also helping you to fight off the infection. So, but there's a double standard. I, I have to address this. When it comes to lockdowns, people like Dr. Gibney are quite happy to engage in speculation. And it's like, well, you know, imagine, you know, more people would have died if we hadn't had lockdowns and maybe this and maybe that. And it's all speculation. There's no scientific evidence. It's the first time in human history that governments are locking down the entire population for months on end. So this is a big experiment. It's all based on speculation and theory. Now, if you want to have that as your standard, then maybe you should lower your standard also for positive cures for COVID remedies or ways to prevent it or ways to help you to survive it. But no, then all of a sudden it's like, well, there is no... Uh, <laughs> There's no rigorous, peer-reviewed, scientific study about vitamin D or about uh, hydrochloroquine or about Invermectin. Uh, yeah, well, maybe they help, but we really don't know. So therefore, we're going to dismiss that and don't bother with anything that might strengthen your immune system and help you to not get it or to fight it off if you do get it. So it's this very double standard. For lockdowns, speculation is good enough for them. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to anybody saying that that possibly we can prevent people from getting COVID or strengthen them to fight it off successfully. Now the standard is this, you know, the only thing that is worth considering is a double blind peer reviewed scientific study. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Double standard. Mm -hmm. So next one. And I think this uh, is Invermectin an effective therapy against this virus. I think you just dealt with that. And I've, I've dealt with that. So there's a, there's a double standard. Uh, number 11, uh, I've heard that the real false positive rates of COVID-19 PCR tests is 50 to 90%. Is that true? And uh, we've already dealt with the, with the PCR tests. They do not diagnose COVID. But interestingly, Dr. Noel Gibney says that the false positive rate for COVID tests is low. It's between 0.8% 
So four-fifths of one percentage point and 4%. Okay. So just accepting that. It, so, okay, fine. So the false positives is not 90% or 50%. It's only 4%. If that's true, let's just do the math here. If we accept that, 4, that it's only 4% that's uh, false positives, in Alberta, we've had 1.7 million COVID tests. So you multiply that by 4% and you get 68,000 false positives. And so in a province with 120,000 so-called cases, you got 55% of the cases are false positives. So um, the math is not too helpful yeah. for him on, on this point. Okay. Point number 12, very important. What is the cycle yeah. threshold in PCR testing? Go ahead. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the PCR testing is based on finding trace remnant of a virus and then doubling it, 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 doubling it and so on. But what happens is by the time you get to 40 cycles of doubling, you get close to 100% positive rates. Everybody's got COVID by the time you get to 40 cycles. He doesn't really deal the, with that here at all. He just sort of does paragraph, next. No. Yeah, next. What is cycle threshold? Well, let's not talk about that too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's silent. He doesn't even say that it should never be above 30. 30 is the maximum number of cycles after which your positive rates get to be so high. If you're at 35 or 40 cycles... And they are doing 40 cycles in Manitoba, by the way. Once you get above 30 cycles of of doubling the dead virus load, pretty much everybody tests positive for COVID. So here, Dr. Gibney has a wonderful opportunity to inform the public with how many cycles are being used in Alberta. And we hear crickets chirping. He doesn't even say that. You know, if you're going to talk about cycle threshold of PCR testing, maybe you could mention... Uh, what is the cycle that's being used in Alberta? Is it 30 cycles, 35, 40? I think it's Doesn't time say. to move on, John. <laughs> Question 13, do false positives and over-testing drive up case numbers? If testing stops, will the problem go away? Okay, I uh, <laughs> we've covered we've covered that. Yeah. And then he says, and then he says PCR tests are the gold standard for COVID-19 testing. And one of the doctors I spoke with said, no, that is a downright lie. So there you go, Dr. The Sanger-based sequencing, yeah, the Sanger-based uh, sequencing is the gold standard, not the PCR tests. So, um, so one doctor said that's an outright lie. Point number 14, and I think we can uh, f- probably finish off with this one for the day. Are the COVID-19 control measures causing more harm than good? What does he say there? Now, oh, <laughs> not much. Why don't you just read the he opening? He dismisses it. Like the opening. I'll read the opening. <clears throat> This is a very okay. hard question to answer because, and then blah, blah, bullet point, bullet point. It's a hard question. Okay. It's a hard question. Yes. It's, it's a hard question to answer because damage done to the economy or to people's health, mental, physical, emotional, social, is potentially caused by the pandemic itself and pandemic control measures. It's difficult to separate these causes. Well, now he's just negated, uh, kind of negated the possibility of even analyzing lockdown harms because he's kind of saying, well, if you have the virus, you have to have lockdown harms. And so it's one package. So we can't really analyze this because it's just the pandemic and it's this, you know, vague intertwined ball. And so you've got virus and... um, So it's either a pandemic caused it or lockdowns caused it. And they're choosing pandemic. 
but the pandemic includes the lockdowns. So this presupposes that we cannot study lockdown harms, which is ridiculous. When you make it illegal for people to spend time with their friends, when you force people to carry on their relationships by looking at a two-dimensional image on a screen rather than seeing somebody in person, when you shut down churches, which, and there's medical studies to this effect, that, that religious worship is beneficial to people's mental and physical health. For those that chose to go to church, I'm sure if you forced everybody to go to church, you wouldn't get the same results, but this is a voluntary thing. So there's actually a lot of uh, scientific literature about how uh, attending church services is helpful to the physical, mental, emotional well-being of people that go to church. You know, fair enough. And for, for obviously other people get that well-being maybe from racquetball or squash or having a few pints at the pub. I'm not saying, you know, what, what's better or worse. But those two are being shut down by lockdowns. You cannot meet up with friends over a few beers. So there's a list uh there's a list that's hundreds of items long of lockdown harms that are not caused by the virus. You know, shutting, closing the gym, the virus doesn't cause us to close the gym. There aren't too many 85-year-olds who are already dying of cancer and emphysema and heart disease and high blood pressure that are working out at the gym. So when you close the gym, that's a lockdown measure. People dying of COVID does not cause restaurants, bars, gyms uh, to be closed. This is lockdown harm. So he says it's just, you know, very hard. It's a hard question to answer, he says, because we have very good rapid information about the number of COVID-19 cases and hospitalization, but information on the longer-term healthcare issues, the economy, suicide, bankruptcies, and children's education are collected slowly and incompletely. To which I say, why are they being collected slowly and incompletely? You could collect COVID data slowly and incompletely. This is a choice on the part of governments to support their own narrative because they just can't bring themselves to uh, emotionally deal with the hard work of taking a hard look at their own policies and how destructive they are. So, I mean, this is just outrageous that, that he says, well... <laughs> You know, we know the COVID stuff, you know, because all the information's coming in, but all these other harms, you don't know about them because the information's coming in slowly. Why? You could flip it around the other way. You could have the COVID, if, if, depending on where you put your, your energy and your time and your resources, you could have COVID information trickling in very slowly, and you could have the information on lockdown harms coming in very quickly. But we're 10 months into these lockdowns and there is more and more data that is emerging because even though governments, to their shame, are not proactively, deliberately seeking to research uh, lockdown harms, but there are regular statistics that governments are have continued to keep kind of independently of, of, of uh, COVID or independently of lockdowns. So we have death statistics showing that the deaths in 2020 are perfectly in line with the deaths in 2019, 2018, 2017. So we know that because governments are still keeping death stats. We know that we have this mysterious drop in deaths from cancer, heart disease, and stroke, while at the same time having uh, COVID deaths. But the number of deaths overall is the same. We know from data that the 80% of COVID deaths are in nursing homes, so that you know 90% or more of the population uh, are not vulnerable. 
So we, we do have the data, but it's not a coincidence that it's coming in slowly. Mm. Now he says, here's what we need to know. He says the control measures have prevented infections, hospitalizations, and deaths from COVID-19 compared to what would have happened if Alberta had enacted no measures. There you go. I've, I've heard my MLA say the same thing. Show me the evidence. Is there any evidence here, Kevin? Haven't come across Cited it yet. It's Dr. trickling Noah in slowly. No. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The evidence is trickling in really slowly. Um, so there you go. This is the government's case. It's an assertion. Mm that lockdowns have prevented deaths from COVID-19 compared to what would have happened if Alberta had enacted no measures. There's no support for that. Pure speculation. Is it necessarily false? No, it could be true, but there's no evidence. Uh, then he says this could be measured from the flattened curve. Well, again, he's, he's um, forgetting about the weather and the fact that the viruses every year are less lethal in the May, June, July, August, September, October window, and they're more lethal in the the fall. Yeah, seasonal. So, uh, yeah, oh yeah. So yeah, yeah. He we talked about this. He he takes. He says the lockdowns are responsible for that. The curve went flat from Mm -hmm. from May to October. (laughs) Well, actually, and then he says, "Up with this one here, because this this I think addresses you guys directly, and that's fifteen. Have more people died from the lockdowns rather than COVID nineteen? He says, based on current data, no." Well, it's still trickling in. Some have suggested that the overall death rate in the first half of 2020 was lower than in the same period of the previous five years. Well, that sounds like he's directing that directly at you guys because you did the five-year comparison. So what do you say to that? He's not presenting contradictory data. If he wanted to refute our point, he'd have to look at, he'd have to come up with Statistics Canada data showing that because in 2020, Canada was visited by this horrible, terrifying, unusually deadly killer, the number of deaths actually went up. Mm. And there is no Statistics Canada data. Now, he is correct on a technicality that I already mentioned. Uh, says that the data source used is not yet updated because the death rate for each year is not finalized until well into the following year. You know, fair enough. Uh, maybe six months from now, 2020, uh, the deaths will be up a little bit over 2019. But that that confirms that we don't need the lockdowns because if this really was a terrifying killer, that it's worth destroying people's lives, destroying livelihoods, driving people to suicide, canceling surgery, uh, driving people to drug overdose deaths. In order to meet the threshold of inflicting that much harm on so many people, the only possible justification would be an unusually deadly killer that noticeably elevated your death numbers to something way higher mm. than in previous years. So I'll say it now, even if by June of 2021, you know, we finally have all the 2020 data in and the 2020 deaths are up, you know, uh, 1% or 2% over 2019, that doesn't make for a strong case for destroying lives and destroying livelihoods by lockdowns. Fair enough. Okay, well, I think we can wrap it up at that point. We never did get to the end of the thing, but perhaps uh, in subsequent programs, we can sort of address them in less direct ways. Thanks a lot, John, uh, for uh, going at it here. Appreciate it, and uh, hope to talk to you soon. All right, talk to you next week, Kevin. Have a good week. 